When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yo, what is going down, everybody? Welcome to Show Me the Meaning, Wisecracks Movie Podcast. Show me the meaning! Show me the meaning! Show me the meaning! 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 Show me the meaning! Nazi punks, fuck off! Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. What up? I'm Austin Hayden. I'm joined by the Show Me the Meaning crew. We got Ryan. What up, film fans? It's me, Ryan. (laughs) And we got Raymond. Hey, everybody. How's it going? This week we're going to be talking about the 2015, I don't even really know how to classify this, suspense, horror, claustrophobic masterpiece directed by Jeremy Saulnier, Green Room, starring Anton Yelchin, Imogen Poots, Patrick Stewart, Joe Cole, Aaliyah Shawkat, and Callum Turner, amongst uh, a, a nice host of supporting individuals. And as always, we're going to go around and talk about our first impressions. What was it like the first time we saw this movie? What was it like seeing it on repeated viewing or viewings? Let's start with Ryan, since he is chomping at the bit, apparently, because he is so excited to scream about this. So in your best Dead Kennedys, uh, Nazi punks, fuck off, scream, yell, um, or not, uh, just tell us, what was it like the first time you saw this movie and what was it like revisiting it? Man, I love this movie. A plus. I'm just going to say <laughs> off the bat. This has, this is, uh, yeah, I just love the shit out of it. It, it. And the thing I love the most about it is that I really felt like I was there, right? Very few movies, like, the stakes are real and it feels real and it's kind of about a world that I know, which is the punk rock part, not the white nationalist part. <laughs> but, uh, 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 you know, I, being in punk rock bands and stuff uh, growing up, like, I just kind of uh, feel like I knew versions of these kids and then them being put in this uh, situation uh, that, you know, felt very real and felt and, and, and the way that it's filmed and shot and just the, the, the way that it's, the storytelling unfolds, which is just so, I don't want to say cynical, but very, I don't hmm. know, I call it real. Like, it, it just like people, you know, some people die. Like, and it just, it's like, it, it, you know, it's not the your average Hollywood telling of something like this where, you know, they turn into badasses and, and become ninjas and can fight off these Nazis all of a sudden. You know, this is kind of a very much, like you said, a claustrophobic, uh, a one, you know, mainly one setting suspense film about what would you do in this situation? And, but it's also dealing with some pertinent themes of, you know, nationalist why nationalist whatever you know all that kind of stuff too uh has these socio-political undertones that we can get into as well while also being soaked in punk rock so all, all for it love the movie all right raymond what's up bro uh this is one of my favorite movies just all right that's that's all love fest <laughs> that's Period. all i've got to say at the at the top of this i think jeremy sonia is one of the uh the most exciting filmmakers working today uh blue ruin is a wonderful film uh, he made a, a a kind of underseen picture called "Hold the Dark" that uh, that is a Netflix original. I, I'd highly recommend it. It's uh, it's it's streaming on Netflix. There, uh, check that out if you uh, if you dig his whole vibe. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm just 
I'm always excited to talk about great movies, and this is a great movie. Sweet. Yeah, the first time I saw it was on the recommendation of my buddy Keir Seawert that I used to do a, a, a film podcast with back in the day. And this was his favorite film of 20... I guess it would have been 2016 because it came out... We, he's in the UK, and I was living in Ireland at the time. And Me so it was too. 2016. Yeah, okay. So it was 2016 at the time. And so this was his favorite film of 2016. My favorite film of 2016 was Sing Street. And what we did on our episode was we talked about both of them. He, uh, he had already seen Sing Street, but I hadn't seen Green Room. So I watched it, and then I got to listen to him gush about it for about an hour and 20 minutes or something like that. And so for me, that will always be like part of my memory of this film is also the joy that my friends who have great taste in movies that they kind of expressed about how great this movie was. So when I think of Green Room, I don't just think of Green Room. I also think of my friends who are like, this movie fucking rocks, right? So Those sick fucks. <laughs> well, but it's so great because what the whole film, one of the themes of the film is that Anton Yelchin goes on this whole big like speech about how music is about live, right? You watch it, it's the moment, it's there, and then it's gone. And for me, there's something about this film that kind of also does that, you know? Like, obviously, it's in digital form, and you can watch it on repeat and things like that. But there's also something about it just being a sort of act of theatrical performance and presentation. And I think the film tries to do that as best as possible. So for me, that was like the first thing that I noticed about this film. The energy, the fact that it seems like a DIY kind of film, even though it's obviously got a budget and there's a production team, blah, blah, blah. But it kind of has this kind of like DIY ethic about it in the way that it's messy and frenetic. And for me, that was the thing that I loved the most. Intense. Yeah, it is. It's so intense. And then on this viewing, the thing that actually caught my attention the most was also some of the beauty of it, which I hadn't realized before. So you have like this contradiction between fucking Nazi punks fuck off, which is the first song they play in front of these neo-Nazi skinheads and the crowd is like spitting at them. And then you get this really lovely sort of like almost balletic orchestral dance where these like these yeah. skinheads are headbanging in, in this mosh pit you know to this music but there's this orchestral music uh, uh, behind it and there's something beautiful about it as well and I think there's lots of cool stuff that we can talk about with how this film is made and there are some interesting themes that we can explore but of course before we do that I gotta give a little bit of a recap okay so punk band The Ain't Rights take a last-minute show while touring the Pacific Northwest, where the audience are mostly neo-Nazi skinheads. They decide to open their show with the Dead Kennedys classic Nazi punks fuck off, but eventually the crowd seems to dig their set, even though they're initially kind of pissed off at them. Now, as they're packing up their van, getting ready to leave, Pat goes back to the green room to get Sam's phone. But when he enters the room, he sees a woman stabbed to death on the floor. He runs out of the room and attempts to call the cops, but then he and the band are snatched up, locked inside the green room by the bar employees. The band eventually get one of the employees, Big Justin's, gun from him and negotiate with Darcy, the leader of the pack, outside the door. He wants them to surrender, and they just want to get safe passage out. Pat, which is Anton Yelchin's character, eventually agrees, and when he goes to trade the gun, a bunch of skinheads start chopping at his arm, and they leave his hand just barely attached. The band then end up killing Big Justin, and they find a basement below the green room that they think they might be able to escape through. They end up finding out that it's used for heroin production, and there's really no way out from the basement, so they decide that the only way out is to go out through the main entrance of the green room door and fight their way out. Now, once they're out, an attack dog kills the singer, Tiger, and then Reese, the tough guy of the group, gets stabbed to death while he's climbing out of a window. So Amber, Pat, and Sam go back to the green room inside to hide. The three then explain to Daniel, one of the employees, that the skinheads actually killed his girlfriend, so he decides to help the three to try to escape, but he gets his head blown off by the bartender. Pat then kills the bartender, and then they grab the shotgun, but once they're outside, Sam is killed by the attack dog, so once again, Pat and Amber have to go back to the green room. 
The final plan is to lure the skinheads into the basement, get their guns so they can make their final escape and actually get out. And while Darcy and crew, Darcy is Patrick Stewart's character, uh, they're planning this whole cover-up operation. Pat and Amber, they actually do get a hold of two guns, and they take Gabe, Macon Blair, hostage so they can escape. Then they let Gabe go so that he can go call the cops, and they trek through the woods where they end up finding Darcy by his home, and they kill him. The film ends with Pat and Amber sitting on the side of the road waiting for the cops. What a movie! <laughs> All right, but before we continue, i got to give a quick shout-out to our sponsor for this week's episode, Storyblocks. Storyblocks is the complete stock solution providing an unlimited library of a million-plus royalty-free, high-quality video audio, and images through cost-effective subscription plans. You know the deal. I use Storyblocks. We at Wisecrack use Storyblocks for our videos. If you need B-roll footage, if you need a song, if you need some sort of cool sound effect like a scream or a squish or a whoosh or whatever it might be, Storyblocks has access to all of this madness so that you can get it if you sign up for their all-access plan by going to storyblocks.com slash wisecrack. That's storyblocks.com slash wisecrack. Again, this is for all you creators out there. Don't worry about paying royalties or any of that other madness. Get that all-access plan and you have all of the good content right at your fingertips with Storyblocks. Storyblocks.com slash wisecrack or click the link in the show notes. Now back to the show. All right, so we're going to jump into kind of peeling back some layers of this film. But before we do, we got to give a quick shout out. We have a new freaking Twitter handle that is dedicated to our little corner of the podcast interwebs here. Go to smtm underscore pod, P-O-D. That's smtm underscore P-O-D. Give us a follow. We'll be retweeting, tweeting, talking about other stuff that either comes up in the show or maybe stuff that doesn't come up in the show, giving you heads up on what we're going to discuss discussing in, in upcoming um, episodes. So give us a quick follow, smtm underscore P-O-D. Not like the new metal band, but as in pod. All right. This fucking film is not new metal. This film is old school punk rock with a little bit of inflection of new school punk rock attitude. Ryan, what what, what do you got to say about this film? What do, what do we think about this film? What's We said energy. We said kind of immersion. What is something that you love about this movie? Uh, another thing, uh, as you were talking, that that reminded me of was, was A, that, 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 that one scene that, uh, about the... Um, that you brought up was the orchestral score and it's yeah. just kind of beautiful and you're watching everybody kind of in the moment. Cause I, cause I think that's a very important concept. It, you know, being in the moment, you know, these guys like they don't care. They're, they're on the road. They're, they're just scrapping uh, uh, every show to get by, you know, to get to the next place. And that's kind of the fun of being in band. You're living in the moment show to show. And it's just kind of like, this is the this is their this is the horror movie version of what could happen on their own and stuff. But uh, but I think that that one that literally that one minute to minute and a half uh, sequence where the orchestra is playing while they're playing that song, you know, it really kind of sets is the foundation of the movie because it's like like they've gotten to this point, they're in this. There are these fishes out of water in this dark, scary place, but they're just living it up. They don't give a fuck, you know, like like they're just, they play Nazi punks fuck off no matter the consequences. And then, of course, you know, we see what happens uh, uh, in the movie. But 
but yeah, that's just kind of part of the ethos. And so I thought that was that was uh, a, it was really cool how they set up their characters in the thing. And then also just being around punk houses and you know DIY venues and stuff. It, this movie feels really dirty, right? Because mm. it's like they're in yeah. the, they're in this shitty green room with these shit you know these shitty people, <laughs> and then like the whole like box cutting with the uh, yeah. uh, all them stabbing his him in the arm with the box cutter. All the the violence in this movie which is super brutal and awesome and real looking to me uh, a real feeling it's all not it's like not just gratuitous for the sake of you know like a horror movie but it's like this is how a fucking you know person that is trying to cut off your arm like would stab yeah. you a bunch right yeah like, like it feels gross and then you don't and then i think i even saw an, an interview with saulnier who said yeah we didn't want to have any of these gratuitous cut cutaways to the bodies after they were dead once they were dead they were dead and that's just you know that he moved on with the story i thought that was an interesting i i'd never seen a really a, a movie do that like like before uh, in such an effective way where you have these four main characters and yeah once that main singer who we've been with the whole movie gets attacked by that dog and dies oh fuck it's like we he's he's an afterthought in the movie kind of yep. after that at that point and it, after that's the wrong word, but like we never see him again. We never see these gratuitous close-ups that you would see in a normal Hollywood movie to be like, all right, this guy's dead, and let, this is what happened to him. Mm. Um, anyway, so those were just some thoughts that I had while you were talking about the movie. Yeah, Raymond, what do you think, man? Any piggybacking off that? Oh man, I mean, there's so there's so much to get into with with a movie like this that is so. I love movies that are just like fucking freight trains, like they just they they set the stage very clearly, you know who these characters are, you know what the predicament is, and then you just kind of follow that predicament until its natural conclusion. Mm. Uh, or, you know, unnatural conclusion, or <laughs> upsettingly unnatural conclusion. Or, um, But w one of the things kind of uh, that uh, you were talking about with regards to that, that opening sequence with, or not opening, but the, the sequence where the, the diegetic music drops out and they go into the score and Jeremy Sonier deploys what uh, he, he claims is the first time he's ever used slow motion in his entire feature filmmaking career. Um, like there, three movies? Yeah, at, the, at this point, this was his third feature. Um, but it is still one of those things where like, you know, people have a tendency to lean on these sure. kind of storytelling conventions. And he, he said on the commentary for this that it was it, it was a choice for him that was like, you know, these people are going to be doing such monstrous and terrible things, but he wanted to actually show them in, in this sort of, like, human moment. Um, and I think that there is, like you said, Ryan, there is kind of a key to that that unlocks certain aspects of the movie. One of the things that I love so much about this film is that there's this kind of through line of this, of, like, competing narratives being told that... The most obvious example of which is the uh, the desert island bands that they when they're giving the interview at the beginning and they all say like the the band that they think a punk rock band should be you know most inspired by they all say like the Misfits and the Dead Kennedys I can't remember exactly and then of course later on when shit hits the fan they're like okay let's just have a moment of honesty real quick uh, my my team is Simon and Garfunkel and they kind of go around and do it again. And I think there's something so great about that that, like, not only not only that moment as a through line to, to humanize those characters, but you see how, like, the counter to that is that, like you said, when they go out and start the show with Nazi punks fuck off, they, they throw beer bottles at them and they spit at them and they give them the finger. 
And that is what the ain't rights expect. And that is the limit of what the ain't rights think is like physically possible to happen to them within this place. That there is still like a social contract that even like Nazis are bound by. And one of the most insane things in this movie is that they continue to believe the narratives that the Nazis are spinning for them in the same way that they're like kind of convincing themselves of their own narrative. Like they have all these great scenes, for example, the one with Eric Edelstein, where they uh, the the big guy with the gun, um, where they get him in the in the arm bar, which is such a great touch that like yeah, one of these members is just like a practitioner of MMA and he does this to stay in shape or whatever, yeah. and he's like such a valuable asset in the corner. But the movie never, other than like when he puts the one guy up against the wall at the beginning at the Mexican restaurant, the movie never draws attention to that. It's not it's not played like no, a and it's one gun little, or whatever. It's one little line. They just say like slow down jujitsu or something like exactly, that. And that's yeah. and that's all they need to say. And then you know, oh, this is and just his attitude, he's the he's the tough guy, right? He always wants to start shit. And so you're like, okay, so this is the guy that trains, he works out the rest of the the rest of them aren't you know <laughs> so yeah 100 percent. but yeah. they have this thing where they start and jeremy sonia even calls attention to it in the commentary where they start like playing detective where they're like okay empty all the pockets let's see if we can find a phone empty his pockets to make sure that he doesn't have another weapon okay he's got a box cutter and they don't think in the moment to check for him if he has a phone and then it's too late by the time they find out that he does and on the other side of the door Darcy and all of the Nazis and stuff are are building their own narratives, not only with the lies that they're telling the kids, but they're mm. also basically like, there is something mm. interesting within this movie that like, the bad guys have to know that they are the bad guys. Like, by the end of the movie, the, the guy who has the dogs is telling them like, the attack command is Foss, and it's the only command that you'll need. Like, these people are hammers, and they acknowledge that the rest of the world is just nails. So much so that even when, like, they have to spin yarns to get themselves out of trouble, it's just a different form of violence that has been committed at their venue. It's like the police come up to investigate a stabbing, and they convince two twin, uh, two twin skinheads to stab each other, like, playfully, because they understand, <laughs> awesome. they mm -hmm. understand what the ain't rights don't. The ain't rights think they're they're like hardcore because they get up and scream into microphones. And these guys are like, mm. no, we know we're killers. We know what we're capable mm. of. We know how we are perceived. And by owning that, they basically control the entire movie. You know, mm. up to the point where like even um, by the by the end of it, another example of uh, of the way that they like turn the the stabbing narrative so like no a stabbing did take place here but it's a friendly stabbing yeah, yeah, they yeah. turn they spin the narrative at the end of the thing too where it's like we're not going to try and deny that we killed all these people we're just going to create a narrative by which we had some sort of like moral justification like they were trespassing and stealing our gasoline and stuff like that and right. by like owning their evil and that's one of the fucking great things about this movie it is like pure uncut unadulterated evil that they are up against they are able to control the narrative like both physically and you know in the story sense throughout the entire movie and it's just such a it's just a such a, a, a sharp piece of writing i think that like 
it kind of reminds me, I've been rewatching all the Tim Burton movies lately, and I recently rewatched Mars Attacks. And one of the best running gags in Mars Attacks is that all of the humans keep assuming that the Martians are acting in good faith when it's like painfully transparent that like every single time they meet up with them, they get obliterated. And there's kind of a weird natural running thing in this where these kids start to like, they keep they keep taking these Nazis at their word when Macon Blair says like, just wait here and I'll be right back. And he comes back with a fucking gun. If they had just said like, fuck that, we're not trusting a Nazi and beat it out of the green room at that point, the movie could have been over. Like they could have gotten away. And it's just one of those things where like these, these kids, they want to trust that like, no matter what their differences are with these people. And they are multitudinous. Like I don't think any of the kids are white supremacists by any means, but they still trust that they are humans. And no, they're not up against humans. They're up against fucking evil. And I love how clear the movie is about that. Sorry for rambling. That was a good fucking ramble. Now, hold on. I tried to take notes on this because there's a lot of shit to peel back here. But before we do, we've been getting some little, a little bit, just a little bit of shit talking in the chat that says that this isn't live. So I just want to say, guess what? By the very fact that I acknowledge that, Big Smoke, we're fucking live, man. This is fucking live. <laughs> so if you want to come at us... Oh, we are? You can come... Uh, oh, this is in the future. <laughs> they're thinking this is pre-recorded, which means get involved in the freaking chat. So if you're in the chat, get involved in the chat. We were, we are definitely monitoring monitoring the chat. So Big Smoke, you may have bailed on us because I think it said that you said you were going to bail, but we're, we're putting you on blast right now. So everybody, if you want, we can drop little jokes about Big Smoke because now I'm throwing smoke at Big Smoke. So if Big Smoke ever comes back, <laughs> we can remember that. No, I'm just kidding. Big Smoke, we love you. Come back. But yes, we are watching... I- I also, real quick before you go on your next point, I'm also watching the chat and there are also some folks who are chiming in and and making jokes about how we are insulting their German culture. And to that I say, Nazi punks, fuck off. I know you're being (laughs) ironic, but I think there's enough ironic hatred and racism on the internet already. So fuck yeah. off, Nazi punks. <laughs> yeah, and here's the deal. Um, you're not chat open. You're, I'm missing you're, a lot. Yeah, yeah, right, <laughs> right. Your German heritage does not necessarily mean it's a Nazi heritage. I mean, I'm. Look at me. Look at me. I am German in heritage through and through. My dad is literally blonde-haired, blue-eyed. He's like fucking Hitler's Aryan fantasy. Okay. The only Easy. reason I got. The only reason I got brown eyes is because my mom has brown hair and brown eyes because of the French. But we are German, and guess what? I will still say, Nazi punks, fuck off, man. Come on, Dead Kennedy is in the house. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, we love you. We are watching the live chat. Of course we're watching the live chat. Send us in your questions, your thoughts, what you think about this film. Interesting stuff, interesting themes, things like that. But um, there's so much stuff that just came up in the fucking discussion between what Ryan and Raymond were just saying. I just wanted to say, there's something really interesting, I think, about this distinction between like being in the moment and building narratives, right? So you got this this DIY crew that they think that they're they're at like the margins of freedom, right? Like they don't wanna they don't wanna do anything digitally. They maybe wanna like print um a, you know like a seven inch because analog's more real. It's kind of like more more authentic and earthy and stuff like that. And they're at like the edge of this DIY punk ethic, which is super sick. But for them, that's freedom, right? And I like something that that we might be able to kind of like contrast this with is for them, they think in terms of kind of like impulsive, like being in the moment, being free, not necessarily having a plan, right? They keep running out of gas because they don't really have a good plan. Their show gets canceled. They don't have any money because they don't really have a plan. They're kind of just... Like kind of like in the moment following the f- flying by the seat of their pants sort of thing 
And I think that's through and through to what they're doing. They're not really trying to be institutionalized in any way. And maybe we could think of even as story or narrative as being a form of like structure and control and, and institutionalization, right? But then what happens is you contrast that with once they get put into this setting, and this setting is a story. It's a narrative, and it's a narrative of this kind of like neo-Nazi ethic, right? This ethic um, that is holding this community together where they're selling drugs, where they're committing other crimes. Um, they kill the one girl because her and her partner are going to be leaving the skinhead way of life apparently so they kill the one right so there's this community that is being held together by narrative and then what happens the first act of the band to try to get out of the green room is they kind of just say fuck it right which is them again doing their let DIY we're fucking anarchists there is no narrative let's just fucking get out and then what happens well the lead singer dies and the tough guy dies instantly right and so it's like, okay, well, that ethic doesn't work. And then they kind of come up with a little bit of a plan, but then um, Sam gets killed. And so then finally, what is it that saves them? They have to create their own narrative. And it's a, kind of like a bullshit narrative where they play pretend where Pat's character is like, yeah, this one time I went paintballing. And then the Amber character, like he doesn't get to finish his story that he tells earlier about how um, they ended up like getting through this paintball slaughter by these guys who were like ex-Iraq, like veterans or whatever that, that all kicked their ass in this paintball, this paintball competition. But then she says, you know, tell me the rest of your story. And then they come up with the plan and the plan is the thing that saves them. So it's almost like they had to then have a structure. They had to have a narrative. They had to come together so that they could get out and it had to be a competing structure a competing narrative that would allow them to contest the other structure because if you just say fuck it you're not going to be able to adequately contest it so that's what i was thinking i was kind of thinking about like the difference and i think that scene that ryan and i were like highlighting where it's like that that orchestral balletic dance where they're in the fucking mosh pit and the music is playing is that wonderful contradiction between those two you've got the in the moment flow that looks like chaos but it's also organized right so it's like what do you do how do you organize the impulsive power of punk rock that is just like you know tear down the establishment say what you want express yourself in your freedom right how do you compare that or how do you control that and contain that in a way that's productive or is there a way that it can be productive and powerful and i think that's one of the cool things that this film also maybe explores thematically what do you think am i reading too much into it no absolutely i think i, I think by the end of the film when they go into the the sort of like when they start playing war, so to speak, they, there is, they throw them onto their back foot just enough that uh, in, the, in the commentary, speaking of the paintball scene, Jeremy Sonier talks about how that is based on a true story that he and a friend of his went paintballing and they didn't have enough people to, to fill the entire course, so they got paired up with a team full of Marines who were just acing them. And then when they were like, well, they just expect us to fucking like cower back here and just try to like you know lean up and shoot every once in a while what if we just run out there and see what they do and that and will that throw them off just enough to to get the upper hand however briefly and sure enough they won around by doing that and and that is like um it's such a cool little sequence at the end there how like imogen poots is like uh, they're counting down the the shells that he has in the in the shotgun, and she like dangles the one body down, and he doesn't fall for it. And then Anton Yelchin distracts the guy again, and then she calls him back again, and she's dangling a new body down, and that time he takes the bait. 
And it's just little things like that where it's like, okay, we're keeping track of the shotgun shells and we're pretty sure that he's just, he's nervous playing monkey in the middle like this. So we're quite certain that maybe at the very least, he's not keeping track of how many bodies we got up here. And it's just one of those things where like, you, it may be kind of a movie convention to be able to throw the decoy out there, but the fact that he doesn't take the bait on the first one, and she even reacts, she's like, ah, oh, fuck. <laughs> <And it's> just <laughs> like, they just have to, like, reload with a different body and try it again. And if he doesn't take the bait with that last shotgun shell, it's just like, uh, okay, I guess we just got to storm him. You know, one <laughs> or the other of us, or maybe yeah. both will die. But this is like, all right, yeah, yeah. we're going to throw one more clay pigeon at it. I also love that, the narrative convention for a movie like this would be, oh, once they find the basement, they would find an exit. And I love that it's a dead end. I love that it just becomes more universe building. And it's like, okay, well, now we just have, uh, you know, four more corners to hide in. Like, there's there's this great or, game. Or, they... or four more corners to be trapped in, which is another important thing. Sure, it's certainly. Like... Yeah, it's the claustrophobia. It's the no way out sort of thing. Ryan, someone in the chats, uh, Big Boss says, what did you guys think of the gore in the movie? What are your thoughts of the gore in this film? You said that it was realistic it's very before. Effective. Yeah, what, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, we kind of touched on it earlier, just the, how it was, it, it, it feels gross and dirty when it's happening. It's very effective, especially, you know, uh, uh, the the slicing with the box cutter scene and all uh, and all the like. Oh. And that they don't really, uh, you know, hang on it for too long. So it's equally eff- effective. That's what everyone says at the end of this movie is that you like are shaken and that you can't, you kind of feel, you still feel this movie after it's, if it's over. And I think that his effective use of quick shots of, you know, the violence is, is, uh, it, you know, does that. But also kind of what you were alluding to before, this movie very much feels like, like yeah, you're you're constantly you're constantly revising your plan and you, and you're putting yourself in the in the situation and it's just you know there's nothing supernatural or fantastic. It's like it's it's MacGyver stuff at the end, but with 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 but with younger punk rock kids. So it's like a really funny, you know, you don't want to laugh because they're in this dire situation with these Nazis and stuff, but you are kind of like the whole time, you know. Uh, it's almost funny how how helpless they are and how every little stupid plan that they have is kind of like oh yeah that maybe that's so stupid it actually might work but you're probably going to get killed and then people do so well, yeah the thing i love a about weird, it dark sense of humor to this movie yeah sure. the thing i love about it too is like i was thinking of your next when i was watching this you remember how like all oh, shit oh, yeah. shit's going crazy in your next but then of course the woman who who ends up kind of like saving the day is because she grew up in a survivalist camp and so she's got like all these yeah. skills and shit like that there's none of that in this these are just ordinary people and nobody really knows how yeah. to use a gun and nobody really knows yeah. how to use a knife and nobody really knows tactics and strategies and plans and Mm -hmm. the thing i love about it is that like even when imogen poots at the end is holding the shotgun you're like okay like this 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 character does not shoot guns right the way she's holding the gun it's not like she's got it like perfectly held and secured the way that anton yelchin is holding the gun you know like also also his arms all fucked up terrified of of having that kind of weapon or power yes you know it's yeah and that's great because I feel like it adds to – I know this might sound cliche, but it's so important to linger over this. It adds to the realism of this because 
I mean, if you take a group of people who are punk musicians, who maybe, I mean, I'm just presuming here, but let's just presume they're probably not like hunting and they're probably not like guns rights activists. I don't know how how often um, fucking Tiger and Pat and Sam go to the shooting range. Maybe the other character, Reese, maybe, maybe he knows some tactical stuff, but he gets killed pretty quickly because he tries to go all fucking everyone for themselves sort of thing. But I don't think these are the type of people that would have trained much in how to use a weapon. And so then we see that, right? Like, we see when they open the door and and Sam fucking just, she throws that fucking light bulb out there, you know, hoping <laughs> And it just hits gonna... the wall and falls in the <laughs> yeah. empty hallway. It's such yeah. a great so beat. It's, yeah. like, it's like, you know, um, it, everyone has a good plan until they get punched in the mouth sort of thing. And they got fucking punched in the mouth and their plans, they don't work to what's actually in front of them, you know? Yeah, you you bring that aspect up, and that's one of the very, I think, very very canny aspects of of this film, and and not only the filmmaking, but all all credit to the performers. Anton Yelchin, phenomenal in this film, rest in peace. Uh, Mark Weber, who's also very good in the movie, I think, a wonderful actor in his own right. When he he is the character who comes in near the end and is like turning on the Nazis because his girlfriend was killed. Oh yeah, okay, and. When Daniel. he comes Daniel's in at the, the end, Daniel's a Daniel, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. So when he comes in, the movie starts treating him like the hero. The movie starts treating him like the guy. Okay, he's he's on his turf. He knows these people. He knows what they're capable of, and he quite likely is capable of it as well. And it feels for a moment like the movie is treating him like he's going to be. Even when they exit the green room, flanked flanked behind Mark Webber. The camera does kind of like the hero tilt up, starting at his feet and sort of like rising up. And he's walking out. I think he's got the machete in his hand or some such other weapon. And he's telling them like, oh, you know, I've got I know where the shotgun is. It's right here under the bar. Walks over to the bar. And as he's looking for the shotgun, a round just blasts right through his head. And it's one. Of, it's just another one of those great misdirects where like this movie is trading on your awareness of how these movies work. And they do it again with Anton Yelchin near the end of the movie, where he's fucking made up like Arnold Schwarzenegger in Commando. He's got, yeah, yeah. you know, the, the Sharpie camo war paint on, and he's got a gun, and he's not playing a hero. He's trying to play a hero. He's a That's frightened it. child exactly. who's trying to play, a, like, an action star. And there's this wonderful moment where he's pointing the gun through the windows of the van, and when he starts to circle around the van, he's got the gun outstretched, and his the sleeve of his jacket snags on the side mirror. And it's just one of those things where uh, Jeremy Sonier said it, it happened on accident in one take, and then he had Anton Yelchin do it on purpose every other take after that, because it's just one of those things of like, yeah, you're not someone with great, like, you know, spatial awareness. You're not, you're not like running down the math in your head of like how to operate on a battlefield. You're you're trying to scare this guy more than you yourself are scared, and you're just not paying attention to other things like getting in your fucking way. Um, and it is it is one of those things that is like representative of a certain degree of trauma. Like if you talk to people who have been in in like firefights or who have served in war zones, they talk about how like the world goes dark around it, and how like you just like you can just sort of zero in on things and stuff like that. And it's just this is a very sharp bit of writing and a wonderful, wonderful uh, piece of acting from uh, from the cast all around. Yeah, damn straight. Ryan, any further thoughts here on these things that we've been discussing? Yeah, like, to me this, uh, uh, I was just thinking about it while Raymond was talking, like the, uh, uh, 
you know that, that part of the of the hero's story circle whatever the hero's journey where it's like you are in over your head and you have to figure out how to get out over your head like that this movie is like that beat for the whole film i feel like where it's like these kids are so far over their head and and you know that's that's like we were kind of talking about before it's almost comedic in a sense and um and also what, uh, what you were talking about before raymond about how evil these people are i mean yeah it's like it's kind of like you 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 don't know you know what where that quote is in life like like you don't know what you don't know until whatever or I think you actually just said it even more perfectly with the the the, the cliche of you know you don't everyone has a plan until they get punched in the That's mouth right. it's like yeah when you're a kid you feel like you know it all and like yeah that you can just step up to this you know this bully and say Nazi punks fuck off and that like you guys say like 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 what's the worst that's gonna happen they're gonna throw me out of this club and it's like no there are people that are way more, you know, have way more worse intentions than you could ever imagine out there. And you got to be aware of that. And uh, this is the, the horror story of, of that scenario. So, yeah, this is a tragic movie. It is a fucking it, tragic so movie. What, what do we think of the end bit where they're constantly talking about their desert island? Like, what, what's, the, what's the importance of the desert island album or band, right? Like, at first, is it that they're trying to be super, like, true to their roots where, you know, they're sitting in the interview with the guy and he's saying, what's your desert island band? And they're all, like, naming these like these um these kind of independent or these authentic punk bands to be like or like influences of punk bands right that um or you know someone mentions black sabbath right and so it's like um there's that and then once they're in that scary situation then they start kind of like saying actually what their real desert island band is and it and it's a little bit more like pop pop type of albums or pop type of music and then at the very end when um anton yelchin and image and poots are sitting there um the pat and amber characters you know he says i think i know what my what my um one is i know what my desert island band is after not being able to say what it was in both scenarios before he just couldn't figure it out he couldn't figure it out and now he finally gets it and she looks at him and she says tell someone who gives a shit so like what what is going on there there's no salvation is that kind of the idea like is that why this is a tragic film like it doesn't matter like there's there's nothing like yeah go ahead there there is a notion that like for all of for all of the ain't rights kind of like protestations at like social media and going digital and wanting to do things the real way because that to them is more authentic there still is this kind of suggestion that that notion of authenticity that kind of curated authenticity is still something of an affect in and of itself like you're kind of damned if you do damned if you don't because if you mm. do everything the hard way the punk way the way that they are doing it it like the notion is that that makes it more authentic but if it's if it's disingenuous and if it's all an affect then like what what are you really accomplishing and i think that's what he's underscoring with the desert island picks is like they go on that radio show and they want to prove their punk bona fides. So they say all the, you know, all the stock answers from the characters that they are playing within that mm. interview, the characters that they play yeah. on stage. And this, like by the end of the movie, their characters have been stripped away. This comes That's back right. to that thing I was saying before, where like these characters projecting the notions of themselves in these like spaces in which they circulate once again, they can't imagine any any greater conflict than like, uh, we got to siphon some gas. We got to like their idea of living like outlaws is stealing some gas from the ice rink 
and, uh, you know, getting beer bottles thrown at them at some Nazi punk roadhouse. But they can't possibly imagine the notion that they aren't immortal. They can't possibly imagine the notion that, like, their, their circle is only one degree away from pure fucking evil. And by the end of the movie, when he's like, oh, yeah, I know what my Desert Island band is. And Imogen Poots says, like, oh, who gives a fuck? It mm-hmm. is just that notion of, like, you have to let go of whatever idea of you you were curating. Like, this is who you are now. Mm. I, I, um, this is something maybe a little bit, uh, not necessarily personal, but it's, it's kind of sensitive subject matter. But I was interviewing um, uh, folks a while back for a project that I was working on, uh, folks who had uh, served in Iraq and Afghanistan. And um, I have, you know, a complicated history with the military myself, but I remember talking to one, one person who was a sniper overseas, and he was saying, like, you know, there are three things in my life that I think of like every single time when I wake up. I'm a husband, I'm a father, and I'm a murderer. And mm. most people don't say that third one ever. And it's mm. difficult for me to process that. It's difficult for me to work through that. And we can like, I don't want to get off on a, a tangent about the implications of that and, and what he was driven to do or or what he was made to do, whatever. But the, the thing that Anton Yelchin has arrived at is that he he is no longer the guitarist in a punk band he's a killer like Mm. that's something that he is going to carry with him whether or not it was justified whether or not it was in self-defense but he is going to have to carry that trauma with him for the rest of his life and that is now the thing that defines him and and there is no amount of like self-mythology that is going to be able to change what he has experienced in this one moment Right. Well, in psychoanalysis, the important thing is it's not that you become – it's not that you reconcile all the contradictions in your life. It's that you become reconciled to the contradictions in your life. And I think one of the things that this film is exploring is this this contradiction between the sort of like I that we express and then the I that we tell ourselves that we are, maybe in the form of like an ego or a self or something like that. And um, this is why like I'm a real big fan of narrative therapy. You know, Like my therapist is uh, – that's her specialty is narrative therapy. And for me, one of the things I really love about it is precisely that. It's exploring, like, what are the stories that we tell about ourselves? What are the stories that we have been told about ourselves? That we're like, yes, that's who I am, and that's that's who I'm not, and all these other things. And, and when you start kind of exploring things from a narratival perspective – you really start to deal with that contradiction between the, oh, this is the self that I feel like I am versus this is the self that I'm telling myself that I am and how I'm going to live my life. And, and it's it's an interesting place of like productive contradiction that you can really work through. And I think that's kind of what I was getting at earlier when Ryan was talking about like being in the moment. There's like when you're in the moment, there is no self, right? It's like that flow state idea that you oftentimes here popularized today or we call it the zone right or what did they call it in the movie soul was it the zone like when you're in the zone right you get into the zone right yeah you're, yeah, you're like in that. the flow right it's it's almost unconscious you're just in the grooves of of the flows of of this world of flux and chaos and then of course there's like structure in the narrative i am a this and i am a that and then that's where like um you know this is going to sound fucking crazy but um uh the basketball player Giannis Tentacumbo he basically said one of the most profound things I've ever heard in my entire life and I'm going to keep talking about this until the day that I die but all credit to Giannis someone asked him before they won the championship they were like you know how do you how do you stay like on top of things and he said look he said when I'm focused on the past 
He's like, when I say I did this and I did that or we accomplished this or we accomplished that, he's like, that's my ego, right? He's like, and then when I'm too focused on the future, like I'm going to do this and we're going to do that. And these are the things I'm going to take care of. He's like, he's like, that's my pride. He said, but when I'm focused in the moment, in the present where there's no expectations and I'm just kind of in the flow, he said, that's humility. And he said, that's what I try to do. And I literally, I was like, whoa, I was like, this is like the most profound thing I have heard in so long. And it came out of the voice of an athlete who usually they just like reproduce talking points that they're told by their teams, right? To just say, world you know? champion. <laughs> and now he's a fucking I remember, world champion. I think you, you tweeted a link to that video. As yeah, well. I, yeah. I, yeah, I remember it, watching that. I think I got it from your Twitter. Yeah, it's on my, it's on my Twitter. It's so fucking cool. But I think that's one of the things that this film explores is the difference between like those structures of the future that we tell ourselves that, uh, that we're going to do and then the past that we're stuck in. And, you know, in psychology, they often talk about when you're attached to the past, that's what, um, you know, uh, kind of leads towards depression a lot of times. And then when you are stuck with the uncertainty of the future, that's what produces anxiety. And so it's kind of like living within those contradictions of past and future that oftentimes can produce these twin poles of depression and anxiety, right? And things like that. So I think this film kind of deals with those things a lot, like not depression and anxiety from a personal perspective, but more from like a structural perspective, like the anxiety of how to deal with who you are and what you are in those situations. Um, real quick, um, before we kind of move on to another t point, I just want to go to the chat room. Real quick, Jake brings up a really interesting point, and I want to ask if you agree, disagree, what you think about this. Jake Lang says, I think that this film, not completely, but in part, is within a recent movement of films which could be called aesthetic. That is, a very well-done piece of art whose whole purpose is to elicit its emotive and visceral reactions in the viewers more than to assert a concise thesis. Um, and then he kind of later tried to clarify, say, I might more say art for art's sake, I think that has a better connotation. I do love this film, by the way. I hope the first comment didn't indicate otherwise. Yeah, I, I kind of got what you were saying. What do you think? Is this kind of an aesthetic film, like more form over substance or form over content that is trying to elicit more of a response rather than present a concise thesis? Ryan, what do you think? Yeah, I think that the just subtle, kind of almost ambiguous and loosened nature of of yeah, why does this movie exist? Why why did you tell choose to tell the story in this way uh, and kind of treat your characters so nonchalantly when they you know when brutal things are happening to them? I mean, I think those are fair questions to ask. Why you would make all those pretty strong choices? Because it leaves. I mean, I've never seen a movie like this that kind of moves in the way that it does. Um, so I yeah, I I, I kind of halfway agree with you. I, also, to piggyback on what you were saying earlier, like about um, the pressures we have and whatever. Like, I think the whole, I, I, I think that him picking a punk band was such a perfect uh, vehicle for, for this, for that discussion, because, you know, that, that's kind of the whole cliche conversation, tired conversation is what is punk rock? Are you truly punk rock? You know, what does it mean to be punk rock? Like, and, and it's, just, and it's, and it's honest, even having the conversation is stupid and cliche and, and means you're not punk rock or what, you know? Uh, uh, so like, and, 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 and a bunch of, a lot of times when you get to the core of it, what is it being punk rock? You know, it's, it's, it's obviously going against the grain and, and uh, uh, the status quo and mainstream or whatever, but also it's not being all not using your time here on earth to, in, in caring about, you know, oh, just going to your nine to five and whatever. It's like part of it is being living in the moment and fucking getting hammered, doing drugs, sex, drugs and rock and roll kind of thing. And, you know, going to hardcore punk shows. So like like I think that 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 them using that scene and subculture 
to kind of and putting it into this brutal world was just a really cool mix for a movie. Yeah, there's the one bit to aesthetic movie. Yeah, and there's the one bit to, speaking more about the aesthetics where Reese, you know, Joe Cole's character says something like, you know, he's mocking the guy that has the mohawk by saying like did he put like jizz in his hair or something like that, right? So right, even then right. there's like this this tension within the punk community about what punk is. Like do you have to wear chains and do you have to wear like a denim jacket that's got holes in it that's got patches on it do you wear a mohawk liberty spikes or do you kind of like like joe cole's character reese just kind of looks like a middle class suburban dude right he's nice looking and he's clean cut and he works out and um you know he trains he trains in mixed martial arts and so like he's kind of just like a dude whereas you know there's other people in the punk community that have a different aesthetic that have a different sort of ethic about them that carry themselves in different ways you know and so the, that's a nice kind of interesting tension as well like what is punk and how do you how do you express that punk attitude, so to speak, right? What do you think, Raymond? Well, it, it also asks the question of if punk is this uh, sort of aspect of the counterculture or it's meant to uh, rebuke the system, how do you define yourself within that space or that or that counterculture or that niche when that, uh, that aesthetic and that worldview is being co-opted by a worldview that you find abhorrent? And like, how do you, how do you, if you identify so closely with this world, like, how do you reconcile the fact that, uh, you, you find yourself, like I, I mentioned before, they, they're like only one degree away from this, you know, they have, they have this really great reception from Tad who welcomes them into his home and there's this, you know, this great scene where they're just kind of snooping around and we're getting to know the character through the camera and that that guy who's so nice and welcoming and accommodating is like, oh yeah, you know my 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 cousin um the, he, he hangs out in this uh in in this sort of area of Oregon. I don't necessarily know if you guys want to go play there, but I can probably hook you up with a gig if you want. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's like, okay, well I mean we trust this guy. Like, yeah, yeah. And he even tells him like, I'm gonna be honest with you, it's pretty right wing. And they're just <laughs> like, once again, it feeds into this narrative in their head that like. Well, you know, punk is punk, and they're gonna live and let live, and uh, you know we can just ignore the Confederate flag on the wall or whatever. Hmm. And there, there is that. Um, uh, there's this amazing moment where they they trip the the breaker in order to get everyone to leave, so that they can dispose of the ain't rights without like the the audience there. And when Patrick Stewart comes out to tell everyone, like, "Oh, we tripped our main. We're gonna have to. We'll we'll do another show later, and I'll uh, I'll I'll refund cover charges." And then he says, "I can't even remember what the line is, but he says something like, and uh, don't forget, there's a bake sale over the week. <laughs> like, there's some <laughs> weird, there's some weird addendum on their way out where he's like, and sign up for the for the call tree or something like yeah, that. Yeah, because well, like, he says, because he says something like, "Remember, this is more than a something. It's a movement." Right. Yeah, he says this isn't a party; it's a movement. This but I think party, before that, he and maybe I'm just imagining it because it's just it's just the sort of like casual nature of how he's sending them off is just like oh, and don't forget it's it reminds me of yeah. the, in the Nutty Professor with Eddie Murphy when he's like oh, by the way, pop quiz on Tuesday, <laughs> like as the, as everyone's like walking out of the classroom, and it's just this sort of like bizarre energy within this space that's like this this once again 
is not necessarily to bring it back to your question about like what constitutes the punk ethos and the punk identity. You get the sense that the fucking Nazis may not even necessarily be into this. It may just match their their aesthetic that they like they like music that goes fucking hard. And the whole punk thing is essentially just an excuse for them to to congregate and for them to plot and scheme and exchange all their fucking bile. Um, but I mean, like the punk thing for them is quite literally a cover in the movie. The real the the real thing that's going on is they're they're selling heroin out of the basement. So it is this thing of like when punk has been so co-opted and bastardized by so many different types of people, so many different like niche cultures, it becomes a question of like, do any of these identify with like the core ethos, like the, the anti-fascist ethos of punk, obviously not some of these characters. Um, but are they all just essentially using it as a part of an aesthetic? Is it, is it just an affect for everyone so that they, so that their, their true nature can fly under the radar, be that for good or ill? All right, we could keep fucking talking about this movie. So let's just do one final thing, and then we'll jump into the mailbag real quickly. Ryan, do you have a favorite part, a favorite sequence, a favorite visual, a favorite moment, or just a favorite thing about this film? The one, the one favorite thing. When you think, when someone says green room, you're, what, what do you want to just like burst out and be like, oh my God, you got to see this. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I mean... Uh... I, I don't do that, but I, <laughs> I I I always think about fucking Anton Yelton get getting his arm uh, stabbed. Great uh, prosthetic is what work. I think about. Great prosthetic work. Yeah. So that uh, you know fucked me up. Yeah. <laughs> I thought you were gonna ask me what my island punk band. Was. Okay, then let's do it. What's your island? What's your island? <laughs> what's your island band? Come on, Desert Island. I mean. Like uh, a desert island punk band. Like I'm gonna have to go. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go a little deeper cut. I'm gonna go butthole surfers. I know oh they're, shit! They're post. They're a little more post punk rock. You know what I mean, <laughs> or whatever the fuck you want to call it. But uh, but uh, butthole surfers is where it's at for me. You know and. Uh, what about you, motherfucker? Well, so I grew up in Southern California where it was skate punk all the way. So if I'm going to go like punk, Desert Island punk band, I'm going to go Pennywise. Um, we used to go to Pennywise concerts all the time. Like one of my best friends was cousins with the bass player. or So Randy, the bass player from Pennywise. So we used to go all the time. So I'm going to fucking go Pennywise. My first concert that I ever went to um, when I was 16, like real concert, I'd been to other concerts, but my first concert by myself with my friend, it was Blink-182, Unwritten Law, and a band called Phoenix TX. They used to be called River Phoenix, but then they had to change their name. Yeah, Phoenix yeah. TX, yeah, yeah. And so that was like the first show. So that was like the music that I grew up in. Um, and then more on the skate punk side, it was, you know, assorted jelly beans, no effects, like I said, Pennywise. Like, and then of course- then, Assorted jelly beans, yeah, hell fucking yeah. Assorted jelly beans, man. So it wasn't until I got <laughs> older that I really got into like more old school, kind of like, you know, Descendants, Dead Kennedys, Suicidal Tendencies, stuff like that, which I still love them. But if I'm gonna be on a desert island, 
I want like something more melodic. So I'm gonna go Pennywise. And actually, the weird thing is, is people are gonna hate me for this. I love Jim, the singer from Pennywise, but my favorite Pennywise album is actually when Zoli came over and he did the album with them. Ah. Yeah, and and so his voice, cause I, I, fuck, I just forgot the name of the band that he is the lead singer of. Um, they're also amazing. Um. Oh, it just went out of my head. But uh, his voice to me is amazing. I, like I said, I love Jim, but that album is like one of my favorite punk albums ever. So I would I would just say Pennywise. But yeah. All right. Okay. Raymond? Screeching Weasel would be my number two. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, go Raymond. Yeah, Raymond. I'm, I mean, I... I'm fairly eclectic. I like a lot of music, but I'm not. I'm not as hardcore into punk as you guys seem to be. I think as <laughs> close to punk as as close to punk as I get, and I guess they're punk in their day in a certain way, although their sound evolved a lot. But as far as like my favorite bands go, the closest to punk I get is The Clash. I love The Clash. Yeah. And okay. um, outside outside of the punk world, uh, being a you know a good small town Ohio boy. Uh, I'll probably catch heat for this, but I grew up, uh, not necessarily grew up, but when I was in high school was when the Black Keys were really hitting hard. Um, you no, know, they're legit. They're, they're, their, their sound has changed quite a bit now, um, you know, be that as it may. I still really enjoy their music, and uh, a lot of their early albums I, I love to death. That was um, uh, one, one of my favorite bands in high school. And one, one more thing I will say about the movie Green Room is... I just have to acknowledge the second to last shot, which to me is actually the last shot where the dog trots back to his uh, yes. and lays down to yes, die. Yes, yes. A really beautiful moment. In my mind, that is the end of the movie. And um, that to me just, it, it puts a perfect encapsulation on, you know, we've talked about is this style over substance? I don't think it is. I think there's a whole lot under the hood with this movie. And to me, the dog is a perfect representative of like, of, of violent racist extremism that this this sort of stuff can be ingrained into people it doesn't necessarily mean that they are that they are bad or inhuman it just means that that they have been broken in the wrong ways and I think that dog is the 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 ultimate symbol of that it is the the movie's conceit that this dog has been bred to hate it wasn't born with hate in its heart and I think you know that that brings us full circle to that that moment near the beginning of the film where all these people are, are dancing in this really beautiful transcendent way. And it's like, yeah, but the, the, to, to begin like untangling hate and deprogramming hate, we first have to understand it as a human emotion. Uh, and I think that's what this movie is very, very smart about. Uh, I love, love, love Green Room. Yeah, the last thing I'll say too, just to kind of like add to that, I think this really fits with what we've been talking about, the difference between being in the moment, let's say the natural, the kind of purely impulsive, you know, maybe the instinctual and the narrative and the story we tell. This fighting dog is only violent. Its instincts are only geared towards the violence to kill when it's operating under a particular story, a narrative and a structure that is kind of forcing it to do the, the dastardly deeds, right? But when it's freed from that, it actually loves and it goes over and it lays its head um, on this kind of like bad guy's arms, right? So there's something also about, you know, the kind of like simplicity and beauty of nature and the instinctual and the thing that seems violent that is kind of hidden by the stories that we tell, right? So I think that is kind of lovely. Yeah, Ryan, go ahead. I was just, I mean, I know we're kind of here at the end though. Yeah. I mean, like to, to, to me, uh, all these things we're talking about, about you know, the the, the Nazis basically being these symbols and stuff, uh, I think it's pertinent. But I do wish that if they were going to get delve more into, you know, what makes a white nationalist a white nationalist, which I think it's good that they didn't. They just kind of left that a little more open. But, like, I do think, like, 
Like, I think when you watch this movie, you don't really understand, you know, their philosophy or ideology. You're just supposed to, you know, you go Nazi bad. They suck. So, <laughs> right. uh, uh, and we're moving on, you know, but like, yeah, like there's a version of this movie where, you know, and I, I feel like it's been made to American History X gets into this and stuff about, you know, like the true psychology of a white nationalist and what that means. Um, but yeah, it would have been interesting for, you know, another version of this where they would actually delve into that. What do you think? This this movie is kind of like dovetailing off of uh, one of my one of my favorite other favorite movies and one of my favorite John Carpenter films, Assault on Precinct Thirteen. And similar to what you're saying, Ryan, in Assault on Precinct Thirteen, because that is itself kind of a riff on Rio Bravo. John Carpenter is kind of like treating the gang, and he's like the gang is written and photographed the way that old movies like this is a dicey political thing, but really old westerns like Rio Bravo paint Native Americans as an uncomplicated evil. Obviously, that is a very racist way to depict Native Americans, but that's the fact of how they were portrayed in a lot of old westerns. Assault Hmm. on Precinct 13 does the same thing with the fucking gang, where it's like they're just this relentless force of evil. And then in Green Room, you're right. They don't, they don't like dig into like, what is the animating philosophy of these people? You kind of come into the movie understanding mm-hmm. like, yeah, I don't think good guys really deck out their fucking nightclubs with all this shit. Like, I don't yeah. think good guys wear fucking SS patches on their jacket. Like at a certain point, it recalls that Mitchell and Webb look sketch where they, you know, it's a very famous sketch where they turn to each other and they say, you know, are we the baddies? And it's like, yeah, you're wearing fucking skulls on your hat. Like, and that, like, mm. that comes back to what I was saying before. Like, this is... The, the they are presented as human, but it is still very uncomplicated in its depiction of evil. Like these folks know that they're not doing the right thing by like, well, I guess the, to clean up this mess, we've got to like force two of our friends to stab each other, murder a handful of kids, and maybe sacrifice a handful of dogs. Like there's no there's no good thing that ends with this kind of fucking bloodbath. And I think the movie's very very smart about how it presents them in that light, Ryan. I think that uh, the last thing that, that I'll say, and we're not going to be able to get into the mailbag this time, but I'll give a quick shout out on how you can contact us. But the last thing I'll say is that it is a really great discussion. And this gets us right into like the philosophy of art is when something is style over substance, we might say, is there actually substance in the style, right? And vice versa. Is there style in the substance? And are they really as separated as we tend to think? When something is aesthetic it has to use certain aesthetics that carry with them implicit meanings so like ryan just brought up this idea that you have you know these caricatured individuals that we just automatically know okay neo-nazi boots and braces skinheads far right equals the bad guys it's because all of that meaning has already been kind of inherited if you will through the aesthetic so then when you have certain types of music and sound and pace and all these things do those things also carry with them subtle meanings that we're not being smacked in the face with and maybe that's when art is really good in my perspective that's when i love art when it doesn't preach at you when it doesn't lead to so much with the thesis and say this is the thesis that i'm trying to give to you because then it becomes a little too preachy but rather when it says no 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 here's an expression of stuff and then all those other meanings i'm gonna let three white dudes on a podcast talk about it for an hour and figure out what the fuck they can pull from that meaning also white dudes with beards hold on but ryan ryan your beard is looking a little less beardy at the moment i'm kind of what's up dude you gotta grow yeah well yeah i it doesn't grow well (laughs) no i love i love your beard bro come on it's patchy baby fucking let that shit grow anyway listen if you want to contribute out there if you're listening to us you can call us and you can leave us a voicemail at 1-213-534-8807 
That's 1-213-534-8807. You can also email us, movies at wisecrack.co. That's movies at wisecrack.co. We didn't have time to get into the mailbag this week, but that's just because this movie is so freaking amazing and there's so much we could talk about. Obviously, as it is now, I'm even like forcing a cutoff so that we can get out of here because I think we could probably keep chatting about it. But we got to run. So as we sign off, where can people find you on the internet, Raymond? Yeah, you can find me as always over on uh, Twitter and Letterboxd. I'm at Crematoria. And uh, yeah, like we said before, now you can uh, find us all maybe at uh, SMTM underscore pod. So check us out there on Twitter as well. Yeah, yeah. Ryan. Uh, Ryan Shorts on YouTube, Facebook, all that stuff. I'd also like to uh, give a shout out to Lalo Dagach um, in the chat says the cramps are in fact the best punk band i cannot argue with there with you there Lalo. the cramps so and, check them and, out. and shout out to david nicholson who said in two sentences what we took an hour to do not all people are monsters but all monsters are people fun world yeah yeah and then let me just for people out there that want to know another good punk band x if you don't know x they were an la punk band from the 80s freaking fantastic check out x also the germs i mean there's so many but x if we're gonna be on this that was my dad's favorite punk band growing up so that was like one of the first 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 groups that i listened to anyway um i'm austin hayden you can find me out there on twitter austin underscore hayden insta aus underscore hay we gotta get out of here ryan send us out brother show me the meaning we show you the meaning of the green room yeah yeah show me the meaning that's a Jerry Maguire, Barry Crow, show them, show me the money! That's it.